1: Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land.
0: Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, New King James Bible.
1: When I was a child... I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me.
0: 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 11, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria K. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you as we continue our exploration of how Jesus is not only the Lord of Life, but also the Lord of Logic. As just about anyone who's paying attention knows, there's a great deal of very poor thinking that goes on within the popular conversations that constantly swirl around us. So, we spent our first episode in this series doing what we've termed, Thinking About Thinking. And I think we saw in the episode that oftentimes statements or thoughts that seem at first to be very deep or profound actually turn out to either be meaningless or outright self-defeating. We've also noted that, conversely, there are some propositions or ideas that cannot possibly be false. We said that one way to think about these kinds of ideas is that they are irresistibly true or affirmed in dissent. To help us continue the discussion we began in our first episode, today we have in studio R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., as we mentioned in our last show, we were thinking about thinking. So, what's on tap for today?
2: Well, today I want to extend our discussion about thinking about thinking. First, let's just reinforce the distinction uh, about certain statements or premises that you just made. Some ideas, statements, or propositions cannot possibly be true. And we've called those statements or propositions self-defeating. By contrast, there are other statements, ideas, or propositions that cannot possibly be false. Now, one example of a statement that is self-defeating is the statement, There is no such thing as absolute truth. We've used this example before. When you say to someone, there is no such thing as absolute truth, at first glance, that sounds like a very profound statement. And in fact, when asked, more than 50% of the American population will say that they agree with that statement. They agree with the statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth. But if there is no such thing as absolute truth, then the statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth, cannot itself be true. So that is an example of a statement that is self-defeating. If the statement were true, then the statement would be false. So that's what we're talking about when we say that there are certain statements, propositions, or ideas that cannot possibly be true.
0: By contrast, the statement, human beings use language to communicate, cannot be false. Because the moment someone begins to disagree with the statement, They will be using some form of language to communicate their disagreement. Or, as you have put it, they are affirming the truth of the statement in their dissent. Now, note that in the statement, we're not saying what kind of language is being used to communicate. It could be written, spoken, or even sign language. But all humans use language to communicate. Also, the statement does not say that humans only use language to communicate. We're fully aware that people use all kinds of nonverbal cues and signals in their interactions with others. But the simple statement, human beings use language to communicate, must be true because to express disagreement would require the use of language as a part of making an intelligent dissent.
2: Right. So, I want to build on these initial thoughts. Now, to do that, we're going to take a look at one specific idea that is irresistibly true or as I have termed it sometimes, affirmed in dissent. Now, for convenience sake, I'm going to call this idea, this premise, the Sarfati Fierro Maxim. This is a maxim which was inspired by the work of Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, who is the lead scientist for Creation Ministries International, and he's also the author of a number of books that deal with the scientific problems associated with the molecules-to-men notion of evolution. Now, next week, we're going to take a look at a second idea that helps to amplify on the truth that's contained in the Sarfati Fiero Maxim. So, the idea that we're going to take a look at next week is something that we're calling the Connor Maxim in Corollary. Now, both the Sarfati Fiero Maxim and the Connor Maxim are very straightforward statements about truth. And these statements combat the notion that faith and reason are somehow in opposition to one another. It's important for people to begin to digest ideas like these, because if you do, then parents, grandparents, or teachers, or other just mature believers, they can then help younger believers understand that there is no need to accept the world's characterization of the Christian faith. That the Christian faith is somehow a leap into an abyss of unreason where we must leave our brains and mind behind. We do not have to pick between faith, logic, and reason. We can have faith, logic, and reason in a coherent and consistent worldview. And that's why we're doing these shows on The Lord of Logic, and specifically why we're starting this series by, as we have said, thinking about thinking. There is no need to juxtaposition faith and reason in opposition to one another. That's the world's characterization, and it's a false dichotomy. Christians do not need to accept that.
0: We talk about that frequently on Anchored by Truth. Somehow, in the last several decades in America and in the West generally, for that matter, it has become common to juxtaposition faith and reason. This has been particularly egregious in academia. People will say things like, "You have faith, but I believe in reason." This makes it sound like people have to choose between faith and reason to live coherent lives. But this is a false dichotomy. Genuine saving faith is not opposed to reason or logic. Genuine saving faith is entirely consistent with a proper exercise of logic, reason, and evidence. Demonstrating that logic and reason can actually help you strengthen your faith is the biggest reason that we wanted to do this Lord of Logic series.
2: Exactly. You know, as we've mentioned before, people often seem to use different rules when they start thinking and talking about God or the Bible or spiritual matters. They seem to use different rules when they're thinking about those subjects than they do when they're just going about their daily lives. Somehow they think that there's one set of rules that applies to everyday decision-making and another entirely different set of rules that applies to making decisions about their eternal future. But there is no reason to use those differing set of rules. Good decision-making processes are equally applicable no matter what decision is in front of us, or whether it's deciding to buy more milk to put in the fridge, or whether it's deciding to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Those are decisions with obviously vastly different levels of significance, but we can apply the same exact logical and reasoning process in order to be able to make that decision that Jesus should be our Savior. Because Jesus is real, and because Jesus has actually come to this earth and given us the promises, and we can trust those promises. So when we place our faith in Jesus for eternal salvation, that is an entirely logical and reasonable decision that we are making. You know, in our everyday lives, we will reject nonsensical assertions. It's just that we seem to be less willing to do that when it comes to matters that pertain to how, say for instance, the universe came into being, or whether God is necessary to explain the existence of life.
0: Can you give us an example of what you're thinking about?
2: Well, sometimes people don't think about the implications of statements or ideas that come from famous people, even though those ideas make no sense at all. For instance, the most common and widespread belief about how life originated on Earth comes from the evolutionary hypothesis.
0: You're referring to the idea that somewhere in the Earth's distant past, there was, as Darwin put it, a warm little pond. And in this warm little pond, some atoms and molecules collided, and all of a sudden this collision produced a self-replicating molecule which, over time, through random mutations, evolved into all the forms of life we see on Earth today.
2: Yes, it's sometimes termed the General Theory of Evolution.
0: The General Theory of Evolution was defined by an evolutionary biologist, Professor G.A. Kirkett of Southampton University, as, quote, the theory that all living forms in the world have arisen from a single source which itself came from an inorganic form, unquote.
2: Right. So, there are a number of very basic scientific problems with this whole scenario. Let's just take a quick look, and I mean a really quick look, at just a couple of the problems. First, the general theory of evolution requires that the so-called early Earth must have contained some kind of a widespread prebiotic soup that was rich in organic compounds. Now, supposedly this soup, these organic compounds, had accumulated in what might be termed primeval oceans. Well, this hypothesis, the evolutionary hypothesis, speculates that in certain situations, somehow, somewhere, that in one pocket of all these swirling currents of prebiotic soup, some favored group of prebiotic materials began aggregating into macromolecules and proteins or even nucleic acids. And then further, so the hypothesis goes, at some point, in some undefined way, a long chain of molecules began to reproduce itself but even by the conventional analysis that accepts many of the assumptions present in this evolutionary hypothesis there is still a really big problem and that is that there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever on the earth that the so-called early earth had such prebiotic oceans or had a prebiotic soup of any kind that was rich in organic compounds The way you would find the evidence for that would be to look in the rocks to see what kind of trace remains there are in the rocks. Well, some of the earliest dated rocks, again, this is all according to the conventional evolutionary hypothesis and their dating methodologies, some of the earliest rocks on Earth are the so-called Dawn Rocks of Western Greenland. And these rocks are supposed to be so ancient that by conventional dating methods, they're almost 4 billion years old. And yet, in the Dawn Rocks of Greenland, There is no evidence whatsoever that the organic compounds that were supposed to have been existent in this prebiotic soup, that those organic compounds actually were in existence. They are not present in the rocks at all. Now there's another huge problem. Let's just say that there were organic compounds that somehow arose spontaneously. Well, if there was an atmosphere in the early Earth that contained oxygen the organic compounds that were being formed would have broken down very quickly. Oxygen is a very reactive gas. Think about rust. So, if there's oxygen in that early Earth atmosphere, these hypothesized early self-replicating organic molecules that were formed wouldn't have compounded for very long.
0: So, some scientists have speculated that early Earth atmosphere didn't contain oxygen. It might have had hydrogen, nitrogen, and other gases, but not oxygen. Some scientists think that the early Earth might have had a reducing atmosphere of the type that is found on Mars or Venus.
2: Yes. But the problem with the idea that the early Earth might have had an atmosphere devoid of oxygen or a reducing atmosphere, like you said, of the type that are found on Mars or Venus, is that organic molecules in particular are highly susceptible to destruction by ultraviolet radiation. Well, on the Earth, one of the reasons that the ultraviolet radiation does not destroy a significant volume of our organic material is that the ultraviolet radiation from the sun that arrives at the Earth is largely blocked by the ozone layer. But the ozone layer is a product of having oxygen in our atmosphere. So if there were no oxygen in a proto-Earth's atmosphere, there wouldn't have been any ozone layer. If there was no ozone layer, ultraviolet radiation from the sun would have destroyed any early life that would have been forming. So you have this intractable problem. If there was oxygen in the early Earth's atmosphere, the oxidation of those early molecules would have broken them down. And if there was no oxygen in the early Earth's atmosphere, there would have been no ozone layer, and ultraviolet radiation would have destroyed those early forms of life, if any had existed.
0: So there are a number of these Catch-22 problems associated with the idea that random collision of inanimate molecules could have produced living creatures. There are many more than we have time to go into today, but any listener who is interested in studying this issue in greater depth can go to Creation Ministries International website, creation.com, where there are dozens of articles on this specific subject.
2: Right. So let's fast forward a bit and get to a problem that is even more intractable than just the basic scientific problems. Let's just say, for the sake of argumentation, life did arise on the early Earth by the random collision of molecules. That's a very important phrase to keep in mind, the random collision of atoms and molecules. Obviously, if life arose the way that this claim is being made, that means that the people who contend that are excluding completely any form of superintending intelligence that was watching over or directing the whole process. So a concise way of stating the problem that arises from this assumption is what we're calling the Sarfati Fierro Maxim. And the Sarfati Fierro Maxim goes like this. All denials that intelligence was necessary for the formation of life proceed from an unintelligent point of origin. Now, I know I'm being laborious, but I just want to repeat that. All denials that intelligence was necessary for the formation of life proceed themselves from an unintelligent point of origin. Now, when you state the problem this way, you immediately begin to see a difficulty, and it very much looks like this difficulty cannot be overcome. And so, you have an insuperable difficulty with the whole notion that life had an unintelligent origin.
0: Well, let's unpack that thought for a bit. The Sarfati fiero maxim is saying if someone denies that intelligence was involved in the creation of life, then anyone making that denial would have to admit their denial has a foundation that is unintelligent. In other words, their denial lacks an intelligent or reasonable starting point. Because if there was no intelligence involved in the creation of the first self-replicating macromolecule and all life evolved from that molecule, then it's hard to see at what point intelligence spontaneously became an attribute of any of the products of that evolution. Do I have that right?
2: Exactly. If that first self-replicating molecule was created randomly, every succeeding self-replicating product would ultimately trace its existence back to that very first entirely random collision. So, under the conventional general theory of evolution, all life, including human life, is the product of that original, undirected, unintended, unsupervised, totally random and chaotic collision of inanimate atoms and molecules. So, the conventional view of evolution completely rules out intelligent involvement in the creation or formation of life. So, adherence to the conventional view of evolution completely rule out any involvement of intelligence in the formation of that very first life, and by inexorable extension, that would rule out the involvement of intelligence in the formation of any of that life's subsequent descendants, including human beings.
0: That does seem to be a bit of a problem. The conventional view of evolution inexorably traces any intelligence that humans think they possess to an entirely unintelligent foundation.
2: Precisely. So, it becomes very clear that that problem is intractable. That problem can't be overcome. One definition of intelligence out of the dictionary is that intelligence is the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skills. Now, the acquisition and application of knowledge and skills are purposeful activities. In other words, they are the exact opposite of randomness and chaotic activity. So, as the Sarfati Fierro maxim points out, the conventional theory of evolution makes intelligence the product of unintelligence. Evolution says that purpose comes from purposelessness, and reason comes from randomness. Now, this is a form of intellectual alchemy. You know, in medieval times, alchemists were supposed to be able to turn a base metal like lead into gold. That was what alchemy was all about, was the transmutation and transformation of undesirable things into desirable things, lead into gold. Well, when you think about it, evolution is supposed to be able to perform a similar trick. Evolution turns the chaotic activity of colliding molecules into computers, concertos, and contemplative philosophy.
0: That would be quite a transformation. But I suppose those who believe in the conventional evolutionary hypothesis might contend that somewhere along the evolutionary highway, intelligence was generated by the increased neural activity of minds that were becoming increasingly more complex. And that's
2: about what the people who believe in the general theory of evolution do contend. But there are, again, a whole host of problems with that contention. First, as Dr. Sarfati points out in many of his books, there is absolutely no evidence from empirical observations that undirected, random mutations have the capability of increasing information complexity in biological organisms. And that's what would be necessary to turn an amoeba into an astrophysicist. You know, contrary to popular opinion, natural selection does not show any magic ability to be able to add vast new layers of genetic or embryonic information to existing organisms. Natural selection selects from things that are already in existence. Natural selection does not create anything. And, even if somehow we discovered a mutational mechanism that does increase informational complexity, that still would not address the problem embedded in the sarfati fiero maxim, because even if there was somehow some magical mutational mechanism that could increase informational complexity through random biological activity, you would still have the problem that somehow intelligence is arising out of an unintelligent point of origin, like a ghost that is arising out of swamp vapors.
0: But neither Dr. Sarfati nor you deny that species do change or adapt over time, right?
2: No, of course not. You know, well-informed biblical creationists do not deny the ability of living creatures to be able to adapt to their environment, and that's what is typically termed natural selection. But this adaptation does not come from the organism gaining genetic information, but usually by losing it. Just a simple example. It's well known that bacteria can become resistant to drugs. Well, one of the common ways that bacteria become drug resistant is that they lose a pumping mechanism in their systems that would normally pump the drug into their cells. Well, when the bacteria loses this pumping mechanism, The drugs no longer work, but it's not because the bacteria gained genetic information. The bacteria acquired the resistance to the medication because they lost genetic information. They lost the genetic information that applied to that pumping mechanism. They lost information. They didn't gain it. So one problem with the notion that increasing complexity could produce intelligence when none had existed before is that all of our empirical observations of nature tell us that informational complexity in nature goes downhill, not uphill. Dr. Sarfati said in an interview that we did with him on one of our earlier Anchored by Truth programs that there are a lot more ways to break things than to make them. Well, that's just a very brief encapsulization of a problem with believing that disordered molecular motions produce intelligence. But that's just one of the problems. There are a lot of other problems. The number of problems that somehow disordered molecular motions produce intelligence just starts with the physics, chemistry, and biology. It doesn't end with them.
0: What are you thinking about?
2: Well, saying that undirected, chaotic chemical and electrical activity sparking around in some primitive neural node one day spontaneously changed into purposive and meaningful thoughts, into plans and philosophy, into moral judgment, misses the entire distinction between intelligence and unintelligence. It's the difference between electricity and ethics. It's the difference between indifferent and indiscriminate interaction of inanimate particles and informationally driven purposes that characterize all life. That kind of a transformation would be so remarkable that it would be indistinguishable from a miracle.
0: So what you're saying is that even if life and living creatures did spring out of one concentrated glob of prebiotic material, obviously that proto-life would be devoid of intelligence, at least at that point. And even if, Billions of years and trillions of beneficial mutations later, there were now living creatures which had some kind of complex neural network that the formation of the first sparks of consciousness and intelligence would still be such a dramatic transformation that the transformation would truly be miraculous. That does seem like a fair characterization. Everything in nature is built out of particles that are no more alive or intelligent than rocks. So there's no reason to expect any collection of these particles, no matter how complex, could one day start thinking. Or, as we say, think about thinking.
2: Exactly. Christians believe that all life came from God, who possesses eternal life. God is himself a personal being. God is omniscient. He has perfect knowledge, logic, and reason. God is also omnipotent, so he can do anything that he chooses to do, including creating beings with the power to think, reason, and exercise logic. God can communicate the attributes that he possesses to his creatures because he already possesses those attributes. So God can communicate those of his own attributes to any creature he creates as he desires or chooses to do so. But there is a Grand Canyon-sized gulf between the idea that an eternal, omnipotent, and omniscient being can create intelligent, purposive creatures, and that such a creature could arise out of a sloppy gel of inanimate particles swirling around in some vast primeval ocean. And that Grand Canyon-sized gulf in those two different ideas, the truth that unintelligence can create intelligence That's the truth that the Sarfati Fiero Maxim expresses in very concise form.
0: Well, our thought-provoking, head-scratching journey into thinking about thinking continues. This sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer of praise for those who still need to come to a saving relationship with Jesus. We pray that all will, for the Bible tells us that God is patient and merciful and not wanting that any should be eternally lost.
1: A prayer meeting for the spiritually lost. Wondrous and perfect Father, we exalt your name and sing praises to your glory. Your word is the foundation of joy and the bedrock of hope. In you, there is blessed assurance. Without you, the shifting sands of a sin-stained shore would wash away beneath us and we would be swept into the depths by the tides of trouble. With you we cannot be moved or thrown down, though all the waves of chaos should pound against us with fervor and anger. Lord, too many have been swept away, and we are grieved to see all about us, people we know whose life foundations are crumbling. We see our neighbors being pushed to and fro by the currents of popular opinion, and whose lives are filled with fear and despair, because they have no sustaining source of truth. We come before you today to plead for their rescue and redemption. We ask that you sovereignly intercede in the lives of those who are lost and sinking and turn their hearts to you. As when the citizens of Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching and repented, please touch our land and community with your word and call our neighbors to you. Give us opportunities to witness that we would miss on our own. Strengthen our hearts to stand for Christ as He stood for us. The glory is His alone, so it is in His name we pray, give thanks, and ask for the lost to be saved. Amen. Amen.
0: We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, All of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're We're not famous, but our boss is.